to What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. Thank you, everyone, for listening to What About Us. Our first year anniversary was July 5th with 27 episodes and over 5,000 downloads. One of my most favorite things in preparing this podcast is the history of the policies, what was happening at the time they were developed. We've gone from before the Revolutionary War and the Constitutional Convention in 1865 to our current federal and state environment. The title of our podcast today is What About Us and History. I'm Sandy Rice. History is really in the news these days, so I'm pleased to have Dr. John Willis with me today. Dr. Willis is a professor of history uh, at the University of the South. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Let's start with a little of your history. Why history? Why Southern history? And what are you working on now? Oh, sure. Thank you for inviting me. I've always been interested in stories, and I think that's what draws me to history. And I've also been interested in how things came to be as they are. And I think that's a large part of my interest in history. Right now I'm working on a project about Tennessee's southern Cumberland Plateau. Uh, It's an environmental and social history. And I keep coming up against these stories, not only about people in the landscape, but also about this period of the Civil War. So I'm not really sure what it's going to be, but I know it's going to have all those things in it. So stay tuned. Okay. (laughs) You brought to us today a story about an incident that took place in Winchester in Franklin County, Tennessee in 1864. Okay, so the the war was in full swing, almost ending. Um, Before you start that, can you remind us of how Tennessee entered the Civil War? I think it's a little bit different, especially Franklin County, Mm -hmm. and any other historical background uh, that you want to mention before you start your story. Sure, that is a good idea. Of course, the Deep South states, the seven that reached from South Carolina over to Texas, were early to secede. They were convinced that Abraham Lincoln's election, even though he was not uh, claiming to or even thought he had the authority to end slavery, they thought it was going to spell the end of that institution. So they did a preemptive strike, you might say, to get out to while they could. Uh, seven states in the Deep South claiming to be a separate country, the Confederacy, that left eight other slaveholding states still in the Union. And Tennessee was one of those. Mm. Uh, Tennessee held a referendum. Uh, voters in early 1861 cast their votes and decidedly struck down the idea of secession. Western Tennessee was for it, Eastern Tennessee was against it, and the middle part of the state where Franklin County is, the middle part of the state was mostly against it, and so it failed. Uh, Much to the frustration of Tennessee's governor, a fellow named Isham Harris, who was born in Franklin County, Uh, and Harris was an avid secessionist and tried to do what he could to steer the state towards secession. Eventually, other states would leave the Union after the firing on and surrender of Fort Sumter, uh, especially after President Lincoln called for troops to put down the rebellion in the South. Uh, Pro-Confederate agents were able to cast that request for troops to put down the rebellion as calling on Southerners to fight those most like them. And so following that request in April of 1861, You saw first Virginia and then uh, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina also 
claim to leave the Union. Of course, that left Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware as slaveholding states that still were loyal to the Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tennessee uh, affects its secession in June of 1861 with a second referendum, this time uh, in favor of secession. The western part of the state was still pro-secession and even stronger pro. The eastern part of the state was still against secession, but now it was the middle part, Middle Tennessee, that now swung the balance the other way. And so in that vote on June the 8th, 1861, uh, the voters of Tennessee approved seceding from the Union. And there would be a lot of battles fought in the war. One of the things that had held Tennesseans back was knowing that being toward the northern part of the south or the area close to where free states were, that they were likely to be drawn into the war and perhaps become the site of battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of Tennesseans had been reluctant to move forward. But now, uh, as the state voted to secede, uh, there was mobilization for at least West Tennessee and Middle Tennessee. The eastern part of the state remained more loyal to the Union than to the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do you want to start your story? Sure. Let me tell you a little bit about where this comes from. This, okay. uh, this is a story that I stumbled over a few months ago as I was looking for things to the students in my Civil War class to read. I like to use a lot of primary documents so they get a sense mm-hmm. of what people in the time said and I like for them to uh, analyze those documents and come up with their own interpretations. Mm-hmm. And I was able to find something from nearby. This is about an event that took place in Franklin County in late 1864, as you said, and there are a number of documents about it. It has been occasionally mentioned and some of these documents published, uh, but uh, it's never made its way into a broader history. So. I thought this would be a way to bring them a new story and also to get them to think again more critically about the old story of the history of the Civil War that many of them have probably grown up with Mm -hmm. or read or seen movies about. So this is an unusual tale that I've put together using depositions to the the Provost Marshal Office of the Union Army from census records, from newspaper accounts, from speeches, and the way historians work, from anywhere we can find a piece uh, (laughs) that will help us explain what was going on. And most importantly, the hardest thing for historians, the question we're always trying to answer, why did it happen that way? Mm -hmm. Why did people do that instead of something different? And Mm -hmm. to me, one of the interesting things about this story is that we learn a number of people act in ways we wouldn't have expected. Some of them uh, much more brutally than we would think uh, could be a part of normal life, and others uh, with the apparent decision to resist that brutality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. for me, this is uh, this is a different sort of story, and we'd have to ask my students to see what they thought. Oh, you don't know? Well, the course evaluations were good, but. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see what Let me if, they die by up, those. if they come back and ask me about it. We'll see how we did. Okay. So, okay. Uh, I call this Franklin County's other Civil War. It's early morning. Shouts ring out. There's loud banging on the door. William Huddleston unbolted that door 
and stepped outside. It wasn't an action he took lightly, as he told his wife and daughter moments earlier when he bade them farewell. He fully expected to be killed once he emerged from their house. He could not have been reassured by the rough-looking crowd of men gathered in front of his door. He knew many of them, and they him, and Huddleston was correct to expect the worst. It was November 1st, 1864. Would the full date, or just the year, mark his tombstone? When you hear the words Civil War or the war between the states, you likely think of uniformed armies and great battles. Perhaps books or movies about the conflict come to mind, again emphasizing ways the United States and the Confederate States fought their war over four long years. Would the Confederated Southern States gain their independence, or would the Union prevail? While those questions and the great battles fought over them did dominate news from 1861 to 1865, in much of the South, a different set of realities dominated daily life. As ever larger swaths of the region fell to Union control, non-combatants, people not with either army, faced new problems. White Southerners may have pledged their loyalty to the Confederacy, but over time, Union armies swept aside all visible signs of that new nation. According to the United States, civilian governments constituted by the so-called Confederacy were illegitimate manifestations of the region's treason. Hence, police forces, sheriffs, and courts ceased to function in many areas as U.S. troops arrived in force. And the United States Army was not prepared to create local governments during the conflict. Mm -hmm. After all, soldiers had enlisted to defeat the traitors in gray, not to reconstruct Southern society. There was a group akin to military police, the United States Provost Marshal Forces. The Provost Marshal Branch was originally formed to enroll soldiers in the nation's service and to recapture deserters, but in Tennessee, where large sections of territory were being seized by U.S. Grant's forces in early 1862. This group fulfilled other duties. Here, Provost Marshal offices were also responsible for investigating crimes by or against Union soldiers and threats to U.S. property. That's going to become important in this story for crimes against Union personnel. But the Provost Marshal lacked authority over unrelated civilian behavior. In this power vacuum, more and more of the South thus fell into lawlessness. For those in areas caught between blue and gray, this period was more accurately characterized as an uncivil war. Life was marked by violent settling of old scores, by attacks and robberies committed by unknown bandits, and by widespread hardship as the region's market economy ground to a halt. One might have a fine house and broad fields but what were they worth when an arsonist's revenge could destroy your home, your barns, or crops waiting for harvest? And even if you could gather and sell your produce for gold, how could you be sure to keep it when highwaymen and sneak thieves roamed the landscape? To make matters worse, in Middle Tennessee, many soldiers were despairing of regular military life by 1863 and deserting to pursue semi-organized theft and domestic terrorism. These guerrilla forces or bushwhackers or irregular bands, call them what you will, avoided military engagements with soldiers in blue or gray and preyed instead on civilians. For instance, 
One night, a group of these desperados went from house to house in Winchester, Tennessee, and robbed civilians of a total of $10,000. The assailants already knew who had money and where most of them had kept it hidden. The victims, partly afraid of reprisals from the guerrillas and realizing U.S. Provost Marshal Force would not act on their behalf, kept the news quiet. A week or so passed before the U.S. commander in nearby Deckard even learned of the robbery. He did nothing. The thieves were never caught, and the victims were never compensated. Life in uncontrolled areas like Middle Tennessee fit the description philosopher Thomas Hobbes offered a couple of centuries earlier of an existence lived outside society. It was, he said, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, end of quote. This side of America's Civil War had no glory or honor. It was just a difficult scramble for existence against tall odds. But what has any of this to do with William Huddleston and the crowded man at the door of his Winchester home? Everything, as it turned out. In fact, William Huddleston's story is fully representative of this side of the Civil War in both its overwhelming cruelty and its surprising grace. What then do we know of Huddleston, the men interrupting his mourning, and the events of that day? By drawing on depositions to the Provost Marshal's office in Tullahoma, U.S. Census manuscripts from 1860 and 1870, Civil War service records, newspaper articles, Union Army reports, and other documents, we discover a surprising array of information about what happened next. First, we know William Huddleston was in his late 40s, that he had a wife and a daughter, and that all three had been slaves in Winchester. When the Union Army moved into the area first in 1862, Huddleston used this opportunity to leave slavery behind and offer his services to a U.S. general commanding nearby. As Huddleston's familiarity with the land and its people became clearer to the Union commanders, he was reassigned. By the fall of 1864, when this story is set, he was working as a scout for the U.S. Army, guiding them through Franklin County as Union troops guarded convoys, improved defensive works, or pursued saboteurs. And it was his effectiveness as a scout that brought that motley crowd to his home on the morning we're talking about. Winchester was caught in one of those areas now without civil authorities. You wouldn't know it to look at maps that depicted Union-controlled territory. On the ground, the reality was not an all-encompassing swath of U.S. control at all. In Franklin County, the Union Army focused narrowly. Their mission was to guard the railroad tracks that ran through from Nashville to Chattanooga, a vital link for U.S. armies in the southeast, and to guard the rolling stock that rode those rails. They had a garrison at the rail depot at Deckard, kept up a guard post in Cowan to secure the long tunnel through the Cumberland Plateau, and other guard posts lined the rails to the north and south. But they were not much interested with Winchester because it lay off the main line. While it was the county seat, the county government, as you've learned, was moribund. As for the plateau itself, this was a no-man's land for the second half of the war. But the increasingly rash acts of guerrilla bands, like stealing $10,000 in Winchester, were destabilizing the local population. The Union Army could not ignore this threat much longer if they were to keep their bases, U.S. property, and the railroads safe. 
The men waiting for Huddleston were among the bushwhackers threatening the population and challenging tentative Union control. One observer that day estimated the band confronting Huddleston at about two dozen men. Another initially thought they were Confederate soldiers. Many of them perhaps had once served in the Southern Army and some may have worn scraps of the gray uniform, but it was their armaments that most suggested a military detachment. And a man of rank, Captain Samuel Nance, he was called, now pushed matters ahead. As Huddleston moved slowly out of the house, Nance shouted. I should break and tell you that these are quotes from the depositions mm -hmm. taken in 1864 and 1865. The language is rather coarse, especially for their time. But I'm going to read you what I've got. Mm -hmm. Huddleston coming out of the house heard Nance shout, quote, I'm going to kill you this morning. I'm going to beat you to death, you damn Yankee son of a bitch. End of quote. But before Nance could commence, the guerrilla's commander, a Major Hayes, rode up and claimed that brutal task for himself. Standing six to three inches tall and weighing about 180 pounds, Major Hayes was the largest and strongest of the guerrillas. Captain Nance and the other men now formed a circle in the street around Huddleston and Major Hayes, perhaps thinking to hide from onlookers what was about to happen. Lacking a proper whip, Hayes had one of the men take the leather saddle girt from his horse, then told him to split it long ways to create a more destructive lash. Hayes next ordered Huddleston's shirt removed. The guerrilla major then whipped the ex-slave until Huddleston could no longer stand. By one estimate, hundreds of blows fell on the black man's back. When Hayes stopped, Huddleston collapsed onto the dusty street. No effort was made by any of the citizens to stop the beating or to aid Huddleston as he lay there. A number of civilians had gathered nearby, but only to watch the scene. No one denounced the atrocity, perhaps because beatings of black men were not unusual in the area before the war. Indeed, Franklin County's pre-war population had a higher proportion of slaves than did the state of Tennessee. The institution had always depended on physical threats and the use of force, so public whippings were probably nothing new to Winchester folks. It's also possible that none of the white citizens interfered with the guerrillas because the ragged men were armed and dangerous. As the earlier robbery in Winchester revealed, and as countless shootings, beatings, and burnings in the county continued to attest, anyone angering the bushwhackers did so at their peril. Perhaps that threat and the need to appease these dangerous men partly explains why two young women and a married lady now brought biscuits and sweet cakes to the gathering and distributed these baked goods among the guerrillas after Huddleston's collapse. It may also inform our understanding of the hooray shouted by the crowd as the guerrillas prepared to ride off. Were the townspeople supportive of Major Hayes and his men, opposed to their lawlessness, or ambivalent? It's difficult to know from contemporary descriptions of the scene. But there had been no ambivalence or reluctance in Franklin County's embrace of secession in 1861. After a state referendum on secession failed to pass early in 1861, county leaders addressed a mass meeting in Winchester in late February. Foremost among the speakers was Winchester lawyer Peter Turney. 
The assembled throng loudly endorsed a variety of pro-secessionist statements, including Turney's demand that Franklin County be allowed to secede from Tennessee, because it had not yet seceded from the Union, and join with Confederate Alabama. The resolution called for the county's secession from the state of Tennessee and instructed the two governors of Tennessee and Alabama to work out the details. As far as we know, there is no evidence that they even considered this request. After the attack on Fort Sumter in April of 1861, Turney and others moved to enlist a regiment to support the Confederacy. Roughly 1,200 local men volunteered that month. Turney was elected their colonel, and Turney's 1st Tennessee Regiment left the county by train on the 1st of May. They were sworn into Confederate service in Lynchburg, Virginia, a full month before voters back home approved the secession, and the regiment spent the remainder of the war in the Army of Northern Virginia. Before the conflict began, Franklin County had the most ardent secessionists in Tennessee. Now, in 1864, as the war had passed them by and anarchy threatened the civilians, the ardor of 1861 probably seemed like a mistake. Back to our scene. Captain Nance now ordered Willis, Taylor, and a small squad to lead the beaten man away. Quote, take to the mountain, boys, he ordered, and dispose of him, end of quote. Huddleston was somehow still able to walk, but not quickly, and the Cumberland Plateau was several miles away. Taylor and the others were on horseback, while the ex-slave was on foot. When a passerby warned the renegades that a Union patrol was in the area, Taylor shouted at Huddleston, another quote, Faster, you damn son of a bitch, or I'll blow your brains out, end of quote. Huddleston asked if he could get up behind one of the men on a horse. Taylor refused and again threatened to shoot him unless he hurried. Master, Huddleston replied, I'm doing the best I can. Finally reaching the plateau, Taylor and his men forced Huddleston up the slope. Finding a secluded spot, Taylor halted the group and turned on their captive. Quote, if you have anything to say, say it now. You have two minutes to live. Huddleston was emboldened. Whether by the nearness of death or the unfairness of his treatment, it's impossible to know. He asked, two minutes is all. Hearing the sentence confirmed, Huddleston replied, quote, well, crack away when you get ready. Taylor was sitting his horse up the slope from Huddleston. As the ex-slave spoke the words, crack away, the gorilla fired his pistol downward. His bullet struck just above the right corner of Huddleston's right eye, then broke through his upper palate, passed through his mouth, and went on into the left side of his neck. It lodged beneath his left ear. As it crashed through his head, the bullet had dislodged Huddleston's right eyeball from its shattered socket. It came to hang by the optic nerve onto the top of his right cheek. Huddleston fell, but somehow remained conscious. He later described how one of the squad dismounted, hit him on the back of the head twice and on the top of his forehead once with a pistol butt. Then all the horsemen rode their mounts over his body and away. No surprise, Huddleston lost consciousness after the guerrillas left. When he came to, blood from the wounds covered his face, sealing shut his remaining eye. After clearing away some of the gore, he began to crawl down the rocky slope of the Cumberland Plateau, hoping to find a pool of water 
he glimpsed before, uh, before the shooting down below. He never did find it. He could not walk, he discovered, probably a result of being trampled by the horses. But reaching a fence, he pulled himself to his feet. When he tried to walk, release the fence post, he fell again. He would have to crawl. Eventually reaching level terrain, Huddleston heard the sound of someone chopping with an axe. After a moment's fear, he realized the gorillas would not have stayed in the area to cut firewood. He crawled toward the sound and called out. Huddleston did not recognize the white man who soon arrived, 53-year-old Hilly Shores, but he knew this wasn't one of the gorillas. He asked Mr. Shores to put him out of his misery, looking toward the farmer's axe and saying, please, knock me in the head. Shores refused. Instead, Shores called to his 11-year-old son, quote, in the name of God, come here. Here is that poor black man those thieving scoundrels took by here this morning with half his head shot off, but living, end of quote. Huddleston again asked Shores to end his suffering, but was again denied. Instead, Shores offered to help him to the road. Will you take care of me? Huddleston asked. Despite his sympathy for the wounded man, Shores refused. His young son, Billy, had been seen by the guerrillas as they shuttled Huddleston toward the plateau, and Taylor had threatened to shoot the boy if they were reported. Now Billy's father put too much stock in that threat to risk openly aiding the ex-slave. Instead, Shores and his son took Huddleston to the road and lay him with his head toward Winchester. Huddleston began to crawl in the direction they indicated until he found a fence and, advancing along it, eventually made his way to a gate. Shaking the gate, he called toward the house beyond, asking if he could come inside and lie down. A woman he did not recognize refused this request, saying that if she aided him, the bushwhackers would burn down her home. Huddleston then asked if he could crawl behind her house and hide there, as he feared the guerrillas might come back and find him in the road. Again, she refused aid. Then she told him to get away from her gate. After crawling a considerable distance, a man passed him in a buggy. Huddleston did not know the driver, but called out, asking if he could have a ride to Winchester. No, the man replied, as, quote, the guerrillas would think he was taking sides with the Yankees and destroy his property, end of quote. He drove away. Huddleston crawled on until he passed out again. Notice that Huddleston did not have to explain his situation to the whites he met along that road. The first three citizens Huddleston encountered already knew he had been assaulted, and by whom? While Hilly Shores sympathized with Huddleston and called his attackers thieving scoundrels, none of these individuals was willing to extend meaningful aid in Huddleston's time of greatest need. All three expressed their fears of bushwhacker retribution, either shooting their son, or burning down their house, or destroying other property. If Franklin County was occupied territory in November 1864, it was most effectively occupied by the guerrilla forces of this major haze. A woman's voice roused Huddleston from his stupor. Quote, William, in the name of God, is that you? They have treated you so, end of quote. Huddleston asked who was speaking to him. The woman identified herself, another quote. It is Mrs. McGay. Don't you know me, she asked. 
Given his condition, it should come as no surprise that he only gradually recognized her. Then he asked if she could have him taken care of. Mrs. McGee, 40-year-old Amanda McGee, replied that she would. She called over to one of her neighbors, Baldy Henderson, and said, quote, Look in the name of God Almighty how that poor man is abused. End of quote. Approaching, Henderson agreed that Huddleston had been awfully treated. Mrs. McGee then declared that Huddleston must be taken to a doctor in Winchester or Deckard and asked Henderson if he would help. He agreed to help, even though he mentioned the likelihood of renegade retribution. As Amanda McGee and Baldy Henderson discussed how to aid Huddleston, another man in a buggy drove up. McGee and Henderson knew the driver, Jose Green, and called him over. Baldy Henderson now asked if they could borrow Green's buggy to take the ex-slave to a doctor. No, replied Green, offering the same excuse that others had earlier voiced. He had property, and the guerrillas would accuse him of aiding the Yankees and destroy what he had. Amanda McGee replied, Do you have no human feelings to let a, a man lie there and die like a hog in the road? Green replied that he did have human feelings, but didn't want his property destroyed. Amanda McGee snapped back, quote, I wish I were a man. I'd have that buggy. Her response gave Baldy Henderson an idea of how they might gain use of Green's vehicle. He called out to his brother Mark, who was nearby on their farm. Agreeing that Huddleston's situation was dire, the two brothers came up with a plan. They would take Jose Green's buggy, load Huddleston in, and drive him to a doctor in Winchester. If anyone recognized Green's team or conveyance, the owner could claim it had been stolen from him. The brothers just had to make sure they weren't recognized transporting or leaving Huddleston. Jose Green was convinced to agree to the plan. The wounded man was soon placed in the buggy, and the Henderson brothers set out for Winchester. When they reached town, they drove Huddleston to his house. They placed the injured man on the sidewalk in front of his home, expecting his family would soon find him, and hoping that Dr. J.C. Shepard, who lived nearby, would tend to him. Then the Hendersons quickly drove away. Dr. Shepard proved willing to treat Huddleston, dressed his wounds, and cared for him for about two weeks. Then, to prevent further abuse from the guerrillas, the Union commander in the area ordered Huddleston removed to the safety of the Deckard garrison. Somehow, William Huddleston lived through the beating, the shooting, and the ordeal of returning from the isolated spot on the Cumberland Plateau that had been intended for his death. But the bullet was lodged dangerously near his jugular vein, and doctors faced a dilemma. Given medical limitations of the mid-19th century, trying to cut it out might kill Huddleston almost immediately. Yet leaving the jagged metal in his neck could bring the same result over time. Despite that danger, Huddleston was still alive three months later. We know that because he traveled to Tullahoma to give his deposition about the incident to the Provost Marshal's office. In fact, many of the descriptions and much of the dialogue I've quoted to you comes from that document. The Provost Marshal's investigation into Huddleston's abduction, beating, and attempted murder led to interviews with a number of people involved in the story I've told. Hilly Shores, Dr. Shepard, another ex-slave living in Winchester, and others. Hilly Shores' anger at Huddleston's fate seemed to have grown stronger over time. 
In speaking with the Provost Marshal, Shores tried now to identify the thieving scoundrels who took Huddleston to the plateau and then left him for dead. Maybe Shores had decided that stopping the guerrillas was worth the risk to his own family. Maybe the fact that Huddleston had lived and could identify his tormentors made it more likely the criminals would be brought to justice and not imperil the Shores family. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like anyone was ever punished for Huddleston's mistreatment. Neither Major Hayes, who beat him, nor Captain Nance, who ordered him disposed of on the plateau, nor Willis Taylor, who shot him. Maybe I'll learn more from an as-yet-undiscovered document. It's surprising we already know this much. But other questions remain. Why were some Franklin County whites willing to help William Huddleston while others shied away? citing concerns for their persons or property. Were Amanda McGee, the Henderson brothers, and Hilly Shores too poor to have anything to lose to guerrilla retribution? Actually, it was the reverse. They all had a great deal to lose if Major Hayes and his desperados sought revenge. Hilly Shores, who gave names to the Provost Marshal, was a prosperous farmer with real estate and personal property worth roughly $15,000 in 1860. Amanda McGee and her husband Frank were even wealthier. Their assets were valued at $42,000 on the eve of the war. The Henderson brothers, both working as merchants, combined for almost $20,000 in property. For the sake of comparison, know that the average yearly income of a free working man in the United States in 1860 was about $300. $300, not $15,000 or $42,000 or $20,000. $300. So all these individuals who extended aid to Huddleston had a great deal of property at risk. In case you're wondering, none of these folks were Yankees. All hail from slaveholding states, either Tennessee or the state from which it was carved in 1796, North Carolina. Perhaps the most curious thing about Huddleston's benefactors is this. All of those who aided the ex-slave on his return from the mountain were themselves from slave-owning families. In 1860, Hilly Shores held 15 slaves. The McGees had 13, and the Henderson brothers claimed nine. Shores, the McGee family, and the Hendersons, they did not act on Huddleston's behalf because they were his peers economically. They were not outsiders from the free states. They were not anti-slavery people, no. They were wealthy, southern-born, and deeply invested in the slave system. But they sympathized now with this ex-slave and risked their considerable property despite having been immersed in slaveholding. Does this prove that slave owners were more sympathetic toward ex-slaves than other white southerners? No, but it does suggest that even slave owners might look beyond race or previous condition of servitude and act on what Amanda McGee called human feelings. In a sense, these wealthy white slave owners might have seemed like the least likely people to help the wounded ex-slave and Union scout. But like the Good Samaritan in the New Testament parable, they defied expectation and ignored convenience to aid someone very different from themselves. Everyone else denied Huddleston's suffering or put their own security above his mortal danger. These unlikely few took the risk of helping him. While there were no great battles in Franklin County, this place was no stranger to civil war. 
Instead of being divided neatly between men in blue and men in gray, this area and others like it were dominated by shadowy bands exercising power by dint of their ruthlessness, their desperation, and their eagerness to take advantage of the temporary power vacuum. These renegades did not represent the people. They did not even seek to govern society. Instead, they terrorized, abused, and destroyed those who could not defend themselves. Here in Franklin County, and in other governed places like it, I'm sorry, in other ungoverned places like it, folks suffered from a civil war as bad as any. In unexpectedly helping the ex-slave turned Union scout, Amanda McGee, the Henderson brothers, and Hilly Shores rejected the guerrilla's reign of terror. It had gone too far and lasted far too long. It was time for this civil war to end. And time for me to stop, too. Thank you. Thank you, John. That's the story That's so the far. Story. So the story so far with some good uh, thought-provoking questions at the end, which is why I wanted you to read that story. Now, this isn't, this isn't in the history books, just the people that are fortunate enough to take your college-level uh, history class. Um, but So what's in the history books? What's the narrative in the history books? Well, for the, for the longest time, the narrative has focused on the Civil War being uh, fought over states' rights. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. For more than a century, really, that was a traditional interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's only been in the last 50 years that scholars and non-academic writers have been emphasizing that slavery really was at the cause, at the root of the Civil War, and the fear of losing slavery that provoked those southern states to secede and, and pursue a war. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the, um, to the victors belong the spoils, and history is written by the winners. But of course, mm -hmm. the history we're talking about was mostly written by the losers, mm -hmm. uh, mostly written by the the people you mentioned and, and supported by the United Daughters of the Confederacy who sponsored contests for students in high schools and colleges to write essays about what brought on the Civil War, what kind of a man was General Lee, and mm -hmm. other things like that. And so uh, literally put their money where their, their parents and grandparents' mouths had been mm -hmm. to defend uh, that lost cause mm -hmm. and to pass it on generation after generation so that it wasn't... It wasn't going to be questioned. And so, yeah, it wasn't an accident. It was part of a well-organized effort mm -hmm. with institutional backing. And it's something that marked the way people, especially the way white people, thought about their country and their region and their families and institutions that had preceded their lives well into the 1960s. So mm -hmm. it's a remarkable thing, really, to think that... Um, that white Northerners and white Southerners, who had so recently been at the most dangerous, bloodiest war in American history, within a generation essentially agreed that it was not their fault, mm -hmm. either side, mm -hmm. and, um, and began to systematically exclude blacks, not only from the voting booths, not mm -hmm. only from elective office, but even from the histories, mm -hmm. uh, the individuals like William Huddleston and Robert Smalls in South Carolina and Frederick Douglass uh, living in Washington, they become subjects. They become 
lesser folk. Lesser. Mm-hmm. And they become uh, either ignored altogether or minimized in their goals and their actions and their impacts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is to me a remarkable thing that in this case, uh, the South lost the war but won the peace. They certainly won the writing piece. Right, right, the history piece. Mm-hmm. But um, now we're in a situation with police violence um, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think it helps white Americans connect the dots, or at least would have helped us connect the dots if we had this history, if we had a greater understanding of a true history. So I think people become very defensive, you know. Uh, you know, my, well, my family didn't have slaves, or uh, we, uh, yes, we had a housekeeper, but, you know, she loved mother, you know, and, and things, things like that. Well, you know, maybe not. Um, maybe not. We never bothered to explore that. And so now, now uh, we're having these, two, these things happen uh, and um, protests, and they're not going away, so so Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. you know, because they've always felt uh, looked looked over or or minimized. Sure, it's it's shocking for a lot of people because even though I said you know the last fifty years I've seen academics and other writers delve into other aspects of the story, I think the popular story among whites, especially Southern whites, has been that the Civil War was something that uh, happened without much regard to slavery even though mm-hmm. slavery ends mm-hmm. as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the, the stories that the United Daughters of the Confederacy propagated in the South wind up being repeated in the North. And right. whites, uh, middle class uh, whites, who know a lot about a lot of things, have picked up uh, just that ancient telling of mm-hmm. the tale that mm-hmm. is only you know, sort of a self-serving, one-sided approach. Mm-hmm. So it is a Well, I think it's just not the South. I think it's, yeah, I think it's, you know, it, that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. The people scratching their, their heads about, well, I don't know, understand why black, black people are so upset. I think historians need to do their job better. We need to, we need to be more effective somehow um, in telling those other sides of the story because we're working against a hundred-plus-year advantage. Mm-hmm that the myth makers have endured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those myths, as you've alluded to, uh, myths about the loyalty of slaves. I read somewhere, somebody said, well, slaves preferred to be slaves, or things like that. There's all, there will always, someone always have to, has to suffer. Yeah, there's a remarkable array of myths that uh-huh. connect to this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we need, to, we need to dig in, and we need to find ways to get the story across mm-hmm. better. Fortunately, I think some of that is already happening. Um, do you want to say what the 1619 Project is? This is a big movement to make sure. this happen. This is a effort by the New York Times to delve into some facts about the nation's history. Going back to 1619, uh, long before the United States was established, because that was the year that the first slaves were sold into uh, English-held territory in North America. They sold mm-hmm. uh, at Jamestown, Virginia. And in 1619, slavery enters the narrative of uh, what will become the United States. And so mm-hmm. that project has been not only focused on that year, but on uncovering facts about slavery since then. Mm-hmm. And 
It's been tremendously successful, not just because the story is told, but the pictures offered and the statistics uh, proffered and, and other things that I think for a lot of people were shocking demonstrations of a whole side of history they never guessed was mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And so you can find out more about that by going to the New York Times site and just under the search type in 1619 Project mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. you'll find a wide array of stories and other media that speak to these things. And it's going to be picked up. Uh, I just want to mention Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, is uh, one of the leaders in that project. She's a New York Times journalist and won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for her work mm -hmm. you know, on this. And we probably need uh, a, a similar project for um, uh, Indigen, uh, Indian, Indian people, Native mm -hmm. Americans, um, and because they have suffered as, as well. So, um, and there's a, there's a clear connection there, the mm -hmm. idea of race and the mm -hmm. idea of white supremacy that, that justified the 1830s removal of, of many of these mm -hmm. native groups from the southeast that would later uh, justify the genocide against them mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. uh, in the west and which also justifies slavery. All these things were connected. But, uh, Fortunately, there are a number of other places you can look in addition to the 1619 Project. In the late 1980s, Ken Burns, the documentary mm -hmm. filmmaker, did a really good series on the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. And that's available in a variety of formats. If you just want to watch it, that's, that does a pretty good job of beginning to unearth some of the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And there are good books. Um, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom was a good uh, standard narrative history and told a story with uh, a fair amount of detachment. Mm -hmm. uh, another good book, if you want to read about one of the principles, probably the best one, one volume biography of Robert E. Lee is by Emory Thomas, uh, now retired from being a professor of history at Georgia. So there mm -hmm. are things to read, there are things to watch, and as you said, the 1619 Project is another good source of information. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, as I said before, that historians still need to do a better job of getting this across. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement about women's rights, those two things are drawing attention to issues that have long been uh, overlooked mm -hmm. or denied. Mm -hmm. I, I took some interest in noticing in this story today that Mrs. McGee, Amanda McGee, said, if I were a man, I'd have that have buggy. That, have that buggy. And, and so some of that is her frustration at needing to help William Holston, but some of it is about the place in society where her gender placed her. What is history doing? It's informing us about mm -hmm. how things have really happened. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a while for historians to write their books, so be patient with us. We're trying. But it's part of my action plan. We have to read those books that y'all write for us, so mm -hmm. read and think always. Um, as you said, that you gave us some uh, some books, the 69 Project. Google that. Search Nicole Hannah Jones. Um, I, I'm enjoying us a book by Heather Cox Richardson, How the South Won the Civil War. It's really a sweeping history of America that starts in, in the South. And I would certainly recommend these books over some of the uh, Trump tell-all books. You know, um, there's going to be some some new information. So. Um, Thank you, Dr. Willis, so much. Let me summarize our discussion. By ignoring and sanitizing our history, we are robbed of our ability 
to assess our country and be a better nation, a better people. To dive into a truer history, we will understand the basis for things that happen and develop a better response to things like Black Lives Matter, police violence, the role of women, the pandemic, inequality, leadership, Native Americans, immigration, climate change, to name just a few. Thank you for listening to What About Us.